0: I like that song. Just let that go for a little while. That's nah, it's okay. We should get on with service. But archive that. I like that one. I like that one. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad to see you guys out there online, wherever you are in the world, whenever you're watching this. Um, welcome. Um, we have a message that I am... I'm excited. I I told you guys I was going to quit worrying about using the word excited a lot because I'm excited. Two exclamation points about this message today. Um, If you're new, you haven't been with us for a while, um, we use a lot of scripture. You saw Pastor Tom use some scripture during during the worship. There's going to be a lot during this message too. I believe that the word of God speaks for itself and our job is just to to put it together and interpret it in a way that makes sense and makes it clear. If you need a Bible, we have gift Bibles in a basket in the back there. You can either take a gift Bible or the other ones, you'll, you'll tell the difference. The paper ones are just loners. if you just need something for today, you forgot yours. Uh, feel free to grab those. But um, So we're in Ephesians. If you haven't been with us for a while, the series is called One Church, One Mission, One Jesus. It's an interesting letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in that it's kind of not like some of the other ones that he writes to uh, the Philippians or the Corinthians where they're having a specific problem and he's trying to help them with their specific problem. Um, Ephesians is great because they're not having any really particular problem. It's It's more of an exhortation to just stay on track. Know what you know know what you've been taught, and live that life. So it's really great in that the first half of the letter, he's, he's kind of laying out some doctrine. Basically, really the first three chapters, which Pastor Scott finished up last week. And then we transition into, okay, now that you know these things, go live it. Here's how you go live it. And so we're, we're transitioning now from the doctrine part into the practical application. And last week, Last week, Pastor Scott did a great job. Thank you, Scott, for, for wrapping up that first part of it, talking about God's love. Did anybody here not catch that message last week? If you didn't, go back and watch that online or listen to it online. It was such a great message. I just have this image of, of picturing God's great love as the ocean and people just stand on the shore and not experiencing the, the depth of that. Because if you really don't experience the depth of God's great love, the complete fullness of his love, it's hard to operate in the rest of these things. So what we do is we start out this message today. We're in Ephesians. We're starting chapter 4. For those of you who have your Bible, if you need a Bible and need to bring one. We have that basket in the back corner, always back there. It's always got Bibles in it. Uh, You can grab one, you can keep it, you can give it away, uh, or just use it and put it back. It's up to you. Um, But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, it's just a small little bite that we're going to look at. And what it is, uh, in my Bible, it subtitles it, Exhortation for a Worthy Life. Isn't that it? We want to live a life worthy of the gift that we've been given. It's not like we have to go out and do things like we're being told, you must do this in order to receive this. It's now that you have received what you have received. God's great love, God's great mercy, the gift of salvation, all those things. You should want to live a life worthy of that. So that's where we're going in this. This section of Paul's letter I think really sums up his entire direction for the church in Ephesus. <coughs> Excuse me. Got a dry throat. That's probably, I'm gonna do that a few times. As you're listening to this, I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna read verses one through six here. And as I do, there is an amazing nugget that's in there that, that had kind of passed by my study. Um, and maybe some of you have caught it, maybe some of you haven't, but listen to it We're going to talk about it in depth. Let's see if you can pick it out as I read through this. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul speaking again. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That is a great little, just a synopsis of what this entire letter is, but there's so much in there for us to pull out that, that can help us, I think, in our daily lives. So let's get into it. Let's go right into the very first verse. Ephesians 4.1, therefore I, the I is Paul, right, the prisoner of the Lord, because he's writing this from jail, urge you to walk in a, manner, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. All right, so if you didn't notice that nugget as I was reading through that, we're, we're in it right now, so you don't have to wait very long. We're going to look at it. First of all, he starts out with the word therefore. Anytime somebody starts with a therefore, you know that you're going, now that everything I've just told you, everything you've just been taught. So we take the summary of the first three chapters, and now he's going, okay, now that you know these things, now that you're solid in that doctrine, therefore, here's what you do. So that just clues us right away that it's, this is an action step for us, something to do. The word calling here, when he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Put that scripture back up there if you could, Sherry. Ephesians 4.1. And just leave it up there for a few seconds. The word calling here should not be confused with the word purpose. As in, you've really found your calling. We use that pretty interchangeably, right, with purpose. Like, you found your calling. There's more to this that we need to see. The word calling where it says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The word calling and the word called actually translates as two entirely different words. Our English is so limited that you read that and that's all you see. With the calling with which you have been called, it sounds redundant, right? Well, it isn't if you look at what it means. The first word, the word calling, worthy of the calling. The Greek, or the Greek word there is klesis. It's a noun. And what that is, it's an invitation. Worthy of the... Oh, bless you. Thank you. People are <clears throat> tired of me listening to doing that. Thank you very much. So, that word calling, it's an invitation, okay? So, walk in a manner worthy of the Invitation with which you have been, and then there's that second word called. That word is a different word, it's not even the same root, it's kaleo, and that word means summoned. It's like a legal term, like you've been given a summons, it's a you've been compelled. A summons compels you here is this now, you must do this in response to that summons that you've been getting. So, walk in a manner worthy, I'm gonna read it because I kinda dissected it here. Paul is highlighting your motive here. We're being told that once you accept the invitation from Jesus Christ, we are required to act differently. To be different. Not just to act different, to literally be different. He's highlighting your motive for the life that you have chosen to live. And a lot of people overlook this idea. Think when you receive Christ, okay, now I've got to do all these things. I have to live a different life. I have to walk away from my past life. I have to walk away from those things that are not life-giving, that are not good. Maybe there are maybe friends or people or hobbies or things that I do that I have to give up. Here's the important thing to remember. It's an invitation that you chose to accept. It wasn't forced on you. Nobody came in the middle of the night and arrested you and threw you in a a room and said, now you have to give up everything you consider fun. It's an invitation that you chose to accept. And Paul here is highlighting the idea that your motive for doing the things you do should be worthy of the gift that you have been given, the gift that you've chosen to accept. Your motive needs to flow directly from the understanding of who the gift giver was and is. So Christ has called those who have faith in him out of captivity into a new life. Spiritual death, we've been talking about that in this series. And with an understanding of what you've been called out of and what you've been called into then should give us our direction for living that way. First Peter sums it up. First Peter 2.9, Peter says this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He's describing you so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Paul says later in Romans 6, 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. So you've been raised from the dead. You've been brought out of death into Light and into new life. And we're called to walk in that new life. And Peter says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That was originally written to the nation of Israel, but now includes you. And this is reiterated over and over again. And and even Paul, when he wrote up, when he opened up this letter to the Ephesians, Remember this, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. It seems like scripture is telling you you're kind of a big deal, wouldn't it? But if you believe that, you've missed the point. The point is, we are not a big deal. He's a big deal. But we're called to be like him. If we're called to be like Jesus, our attitude should be like Paul writes to the Philippians. Let me read this for you. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. And he starts it out. Have this attitude in yourselves, okay? So that should clue you in. This is how we should be thinking, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus, fully divine, didn't just act humble. He became humble. He didn't just act humble. He literally became humility. Now, listen to this. It's another one of those gems that's in here. Ephesians 4, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now here's our Greek lesson, but this is an important one, so don't don't tune me out. Kayla, if you're out there, I I know you're writing down. The word humility there, that's not found anywhere else in New Testament Scripture. The word humble is... Be humble, but not this word humility. Let me explain it to you, because you're like, what? It translates as the word. I'm going to say it as slowly as I can in the Greek as tapinos tapeno, rousone. Tapenos rousone. Yeah, don't even, don't even try. But that's what that word humility translates to. It's the only place in Paul's letters. Paul writes that word again and again, and again. That word was not a Greek word. In fact, it is not a Greek word. It's not Greek, it's not Latin. Paul invented that word. Paul invented that word, and he's the only one that uses it. And the definition, and the use that Paul, in the situation that Paul uses it in, it's an inside-out virtue produced by comparing ourselves to the Lord rather than to others. It's a noun. To be humble, okay, that's a, that's a verb. It's something you're doing. This word here, with humility, tap, tap, yeah, that one, um, it's a noun. It's something you become. It's not something you try to do. It's not an action. It's something that you are. Important means don't just do it, be it. Everywhere else that you find that word, it's a verb. Paul uses it in a noun. Now, if you go back to the ancient Hebrew, they understood that as well. You find a version of that word used once in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 18:2 18:12, that is, before destruction the heart of a person is haughty, but humility goes before honor. You might know the familiar version where it says pride goes before a fall. And then the prophet Zephaniah uses it one other time. Other than that, the only time you see the idea of literally becoming humility itself is used by Paul and and only in his letters. The idea is that Paul is in a unique place to understand how acting humble, acting holy, acting righteous is a complete sham, only by truly being that. Paul grew up as a Pharisee. He knew what it was like to be surrounded by people who spent all day long trying to act and be godly, only the outpouring of that was not always a reflection of that godliness. So he knew, like, look, I spent my whole life acting godly, acting humble, acting like I was following the law, acting like all these things. But in fact, now that I know Christ, I know that that was all just an act. What we need to do is be those things. Be holy, be humble. Not act holy, not act humble, be them. So the obvious question is like, how can I then become humility itself? Paul is saying, humility is not just a way you act. It's, a, it's, it's a, a thing and you need to become that thing. So the question is, how do I do that? Here's a good place to start. He writes, he continues, Ephesians 4.3, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Right, here's something important to know. All believers have the same Holy Spirit in them. Do you believe that? All believers worldwide have the same Holy Spirit. There's not a different, different version of Holy Spirit given to different denominations or people or places. It's the same Holy Spirit. So, if you have the same Holy Spirit, and he writes this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians twelve, 13, For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. We all have the same Spirit. Now, here's the important thing to know. We don't, as human beings, we don't need to generate or figure out how to create unity of the Spirit. We all have the same spirit. We all have and are given that gift of immediate unity in the spirit with all other believers all over the world. No matter the denomination, no matter what church they go to, we all have the same Holy Spirit. We don't create it. We are gifted it. And the only thing we can do is mess it up. You are immediately given that gift of the Holy Spirit creating unity with all other believers worldwide, the body of Christ. And our responsibility is to recognize it and to nurture it, not damage it, not to minimize it, not to put it on a shelf somewhere and say, yeah, okay, I get unity, but you mean with just my friends, right? Not that church across the street that believes differently than we do. Our job is to not minimize and damage and ruin the gift that we have been given, which is unity. One scholar actually wrote it like this, and I like how he said it. This is a spiritual unity, not necessarily a structural or denominational unity. It's evident in the quick fellowship possible among Christians of all different races, nationalities, languages, and economic classes. Anybody ever been on a mission trip or been somewhere else and you, and you meet somebody who's a Christian and immediately, they're your friend? That's just how unity in the spirit works. We have an easier job, an easier time going to, we could go to Kenya and blend right in with, with Pastor Paffras and his denomination, his, his congregation out there. We could blend right in and all be great friends but well, we go across the street to the church that's not us and who doesn't maybe teach about gifts or the Spirit the same exact way that we do. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, but, but where are you? And what do you teach on baptism? What's your belief about women teaching in church? What's your belief about why do we do that? We start throwing up all these things like, let's make sure that you check all the boxes so I can be your friend. We go somewhere else and we have that unity of this spirit because we're not expecting to compete with them. Let's move on to the last couple of verses here. Ephesians 4, 4 and 5. There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. First of all, it's interesting that Paul uses baptism as an example of unity because that's one of the things that people argue about the most. He goes on, verse 6, One God, one Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So here in this final exhortation, this final little advice that Paul's given us on how to live our life, we again, he revisits that idea of calling and being called. Again, just a reminder, calling, the first one, it's an invitation. And called is a summons. It's compelling you. You've received the invitation. Now you are compelled to live differently. Remember, we're being told that once we accept the invitation from Jesus, we're required not just to act differently but literally be different. And maintaining the unity of the Spirit is only possible if we are able to set aside our self-interest, all the things that we think we know, and truly be humble. Not act humble. Because it's one thing to act humble and go, hey, love your church. Love had a great time at your service today. Man, it was really, it was really interesting the way you did baptism. And it's, I, I really enjoyed the the woman teacher that you have. And then you walk out in the car on the way home, go, oh, I can't believe they did that. I would never do that. That's not becoming humility. That's acting humble to their face, but then as soon as you're separate, if we're lucky enough to wait until you're separate from them, maintaining the unity of the spirit is only possible if we truly become humble because unity is not the same as uniformity. Unity, hear that, unity is not the same as uniformity. You go all over the world you will find different churches, different denominations who worship Jesus differently. They interpret Scripture differently. I'm not talking about right or wrong or heresy, I'm talking about interpretation. With the best possible intentions, they have interpreted it differently than we do. It's not uniformity that we're called to, it's unity. And these differences are what can cause division. And acting humble is not going to maintain unity. You must become the essence of humility, which is exactly why Paul had to invent a word to describe what he's calling us to. Attempting to be humble is going to fail almost every time. Our higher calling in Christ is not a call to act different. It's a call to be different, to be holy as he is holy. Now, that's another hang-up for some of us. 1 Peter 1.16 says, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting from Leviticus all the way back, Leviticus 11.44. Let me read you Leviticus 11.44. For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy because I am holy. And you shall not make for yourselves, you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. Anybody feel like this earth is swarming with things that want to make you unholy? If you don't think so, you probably haven't been paying attention be holy for I am holy. Anybody find it difficult to look at the person next to you or look at the person that you see in the mirror in the morning and think, that person's holy? The word holy in Hebrew is kadash, and it means to be set apart for a specific purpose. That's what the word holy means. Webster's, if you look at the dictionary and the common idea of what holiness is, Webster says, religious or morally good, exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. Anybody here perfect in goodness and righteousness? Anyone? This is why it's hard for us to look at that and say, I'm called to be holy. What does that mean? if you're honest with yourself or if you've ever, let's just say if you've ever met another human being, you know that it's hard to think that a human can be holy. Maybe the priests of the temple, who that was originally written to, they can be holy maybe because they've devoted their entire lives, every waking moment to being holy. And then you have guys like this. This is a priest of the temple. Okay, in order to be the high priest, you had to dress like that every single day. And each one of the pieces of his garment meant something specific. And not only did they dress like that, but they lived that life every moment of every day, doing everything they can to keep themselves holy and set apart. And that was the attempt. And even then, they couldn't do it. But anybody, anybody get up this morning and dress like that, going, okay, I'm putting on my belt, and here's what this belt means. My shoes mean this. My necklace means this. Probably none of us did that. Maybe we're wearing some jewelry or something, but their entire life, their very being was devoted to being holy and set apart. You saw that guy on the street, and you knew he is holy and set apart for a specific reason. He didn't mix the profane in with the holy activities that he did. But the wider intent, you can take that down, the wider intent of being holy was to be set aside and suitable for a specific purpose. Now in the high priest's purpose, his specific purpose was to take care of the temple. What's your specific purpose when God tells you Be holy, for I am holy. What's your specific purpose that you're being set aside for? That's something that we all have to wrestle with. We all have to see the Holy Spirit working in our lives to find our purpose. Many people have been Christians forever and still are not sure what their purpose is. But I can tell you what it's not it's not mixing with the profane of this world. It's not mixing with all the garbage of this world that comes out there. And what does that look like in our lives? That looks like some of the most seasoned Christians, good people, well-meaning people that I know engaging in social media on things that are extremely profane. And I'm not meaning profanity like bad language. I mean... Engaging in politics, culture wars, these sorts of things. There's a time and a place for that. But are you keeping yourself set aside for a specific purpose, which is to be a follower of Christ, which is to make him be known, to make him be glorified? Are the things that we do, we think, we post, we say, our actions out in the world, do they all point to that purpose? Or in many cases, we engage with the things of the world. And people look at us and go, "Yeah, you're, you're just like that guy who doesn't know Christ. Things you're saying, posting, doing, acting, he doesn't know the Lord and you're acting exactly the same. That's not holy and set apart. Again, it's such a radical idea that Paul had to invent a word to describe it. And so in our text for today, the one that I read at the beginning, Paul couples the idea of humility directly with instruction on how to bear with one another in love. Remember that? Be humble, become the very essence of humility, and bear with one another in love. Now, here's how Paul describes, stay with me, we're almost there. Paul describes love. In his letter to the Corinthians, if you've, if you've been to a wedding ever in your life, you've probably heard parts of this, but listen to this, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, he's describing the very essence of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. It does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Anybody ever heard that before? Now what I want you to do, we've got that on screen. Put it back up. If you could go back to verse four, okay, at the start and just kind of follow along as we go. I want you to reread that, and we're going to reread that together. And wherever it says love or it, I want you to substitute your name or, or, the, or the word I and see if it still applies to you. Can you say this? Let's go back to the beginning. I am patient, I am kind, I am not jealous, I do not brag. I am not arrogant. I do not act disgracefully. I do not seek my own benefit. I am not provoked. I do not keep an account of a wrong suffered. I do not rejoice in unrighteousness, but I rejoice with the truth. I keep every confidence. I believe all things. I hope all things, and I endure all things. Church, if that's not how you can describe yourself, or more importantly, how people around you would describe you, then you need to ask yourself, are you keeping yourself holy and set aside for the purpose that God has for you? Because if you can't say those things about yourself, you need to reexamine where your heart is. Fortunately, If you can't say those things about yourself, there is always redemption. Always. There's always another chance. And what it takes is repentance. Step one in repentance is realizing you have something to repent for. So if you read that and you go, man, I don't know if the people I know, I don't know if I can say that about myself, much less if the people I know work with, work for, people I see at school, the people I see on the street, if they wouldn't describe me like that, have I allowed myself to mix the profane of this world in with the holy and set-apart calling that I have accepted from Christ? And if you're not sure about that, then we repent. Repent means just turn away from it. It's not always a long process. It just means you recognize that's not where I need to be. I need to be over here. And you thank God that there's always, always grace and there's always a do-over and redemption if we repent. Guys, God, we talk about being loved. God is perfect love. God is love. We cannot do it on our own. We can only do it through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has given us everything we need. All we can do is mess it up. But thankfully, every time we mess up, there is redemption, amen? So we're gonna pray right now. And if you're in that place where you're not sure, or maybe you are sure that that absolutely does not apply to you, this is where I'm convicted today. I read that, and I go, that's not me. Maybe on my best day, that's kind of me. It's not me today. I need to repent. And so as we pray, there's that opportunity to repent. And when we do, then we'll move directly into communion. Communion is taking the body and the blood of Christ and saying thank you. Thank you that there is redemption. Thank you that all of my faults and all of my failures are covered by your blood. And I accept that. And I will now do everything I can to walk in the unity of the Spirit that you have gifted me with and do everything I do in love. It's a complete do over, and it is such a radical idea, but it's free. But when we do that, we're not just saying, hey, yay, I get get to get out of jail free card and then go out and live the same life. We're called to live a life worthy of the gift that we have chosen to accept. It's a choice. We get to make that choice every single day over and over. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are who you are. I thank you that my failures, my shortcomings, are not are not cause for being dismissed from your kingdom. All of my failures, all of my shortcomings, you forgive. You know of them before you ever forgave me the first time. And so, Lord, I repent of everything that I have done that is not honoring to the gift that you have given me, that is not reflective of who you are in me. I repent of those times where I have created a disunity in the spirit by my judgment, by my pride, by my actions, by my thoughts. Lord, I just pray that I am able to recognize and live a life worthy of the gift that you have given me. Lord, I thank you for eternal, an eternal list of do-overs all made possible through your blood. So, Father, I thank you. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for my calling. I accept that calling, and I will walk in that calling because you have chosen me before I ever chose you, but I say yes. I say yes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We will have two communion stations. Uh, Pastor Gabe and I will be over here. And then uh, Jim and Sandy will be right over here on this side, and all you need to do is just say yes to that offer. And if you have done that, we invite you to take communion with us. If you're in a place where you need prayer, maybe you just need need somebody to agree with you. I'm not where I need to be. We have a prayer team in the back. Look for someone with a lanyard. They will pray with you. Pray with the person sitting next to you. It's not a formula. Sometimes we just need help and direction in those things. If you can say yes in your heart, then take communion with us, and let's celebrate what Jesus has done. Amen? Thank you, guys.